Good morning. Turn with me to Romans chapter 8, we're reading verses 12 through 25. So then, brothers, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope. For, we, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. This is the very word of God. Every promise in life is undergirded by hope. When a parent promises a child a future fulfillment, hope fills the child even when waiting seems long comes the question, are we there yet? When a lover promises marriage to his beloved, hope fills the heart until the day of wedding arrives. When a treatment promises healing, hope fills the heart and sustains through the pains of therapy. Sometimes the promise seems to be far off and waiting feels hard. Patience may falter or even the promise itself might be relegated to memory. At other times, such promises fail and hope crumbles. The fulfillment does not happen. The relationship falls apart. The wound never heals. Cancer is not defeated. Waiting and suffering seem to have been in vain. But when the promise is realized, the day is glorious and joy is abundant. Waiting for the promise was worth it. Patience was not in vain. Suffering was not meaningless. And it all seems to have been but for a moment when the promise at last is received. Such is the case of the promise of eternal glory in Christ, which has been given to us since the moment of our salvation. The Spirit of God, we have been studying in Romans so far in the previous four sermons, who gave us life 
and inducted us into adoption is the spirit of assurance that we are now children of God and his heirs. The verses of the first half of this chapter have all been proclaiming these truths until the second half of verse 17, where Paul gives the provision that we will be glorified with Christ if we will suffer with him. And so we arrive to today's passage that expounds this idea by addressing the reality of present suffering, the waiting of patient expectation, and the promise of the hope of glory. First, the reality of present suffering. The provision Paul makes of our suffering with Christ anchors its reality in our present time, even as we look forward to future glory. It is imperative we talk about the problem of suffering, even when time fails us to do a full treatise of it. Suffering is an essential question that all worldviews must give a meaningful answer to. Why do we suffer? How long? And what is the purpose of our suffering? Suffering affects people of all backgrounds and worldviews albeit some more than others and in different ways. You see, cancer affects Americans and Iranians. War came to Lebanese and to Vietnamese. Pain hurts adults and children. Loss affects males and females. Persecution displaces West Bank Christians and Uyghur Muslims. Paul himself knew much suffering from persecution, assassination attempts, stoning, shipwrecking, snakebite, the famous thorn in his flesh, and in addition to this, his fighting the desires of the body, which led him to say at the end of chapter 7, wretched man that I am. In other words, woe is me. Who will save me from this body of death? In addition to all these types of suffering, Paul has been arguing that Christians have the unique call of suffering in our fight against sin. Pushing against darkness is exhausting. It seems interminable. It would be futile to try to do it in our own strength as we saw a couple weeks ago. But we have the promise that it is by the Spirit that we put to death the deeds of the body back in verse 13. Still you might wonder, why must we suffer? If we have already been saved, why do we not have our best life now? Why are we still tempted? Why is there still pain? We cry with the psalmist, how long, O Lord? How long will it hurt? Why the diagnosis of cancer? or type 1 diabetes, or COVID pneumonia, or miscarriage? Why did a tornado kill dozens of people in Kentucky? Why did heavy snow affect and suffocate tourists in Pakistan? Why did a tsunami drown people? Why did children die in a fire in New York City? Why are humans trafficked? How long will war ravage innocent peoples? Why does justice seem hard to find? 
Why are unborn babies still being murdered every single day in the womb? Must we come to the glory of Christ through this suffering? Why do we suffer? If you and I are honest with ourselves, the answer becomes clear. We suffer because we deserve it. We have sinned against a holy God whose eyes are too pure to look upon evil and sin. We rebelled against him and we deserve condemnation. That is the only thing we deserve from a just God. Yet that is exactly why Jesus suffered in bearing our sin as God's justice was exercised upon him on the cross so that we may have a way that has been made for us to be saved. And that is the only way by which we can receive grace and find mercy in our deepest times of need. You see, friends, Christ suffered because of our sin. We and all humanity suffer because of our own sin. Now, even more than this, our sin did not affect only humanity, but it affected all of creation. The story of life has been marred by suffering since the sin of our father, Adam. The fall did not affect Adam and Eve and their descendants alone, but its consequences spread like infestation in all of creation. Even trees become sick. Animals develop cancer. Droughts scorch the earth. Then there are floods, winds, storms, hails, heat waves, infestations, ravaging locusts, and many, many more. All of subhuman creation, which is Paul's intent in these verses, groans because our sin affects the entire cosmos, this earth that was made for us. To live on. Some people think that our sin has no consequence on the lives of others or that sin is impersonal. We believe our own lie that what we do in our own lives does not affect anything or anyone else. But your sin and my sin affect us all, especially in the body of Christ. Paul asks elsewhere, why are there divisions? and disunity, and quarrels among us? It's because of our sin. In fact, Paul says that the whole world was subjected to futility. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility because of our sin. You see, we have been given a dominion over all the works of God's hands. In Genesis 1, God commands us to be fruitful and multiply Fill the earth, subdue it, and have dominion over all creation. Psalm 8, verse 6 repeats this, the mandate of dominion, that God gave us dominion over all the works of his hands. He has put all things under our feet. When man fell, sin affected all that is within the realm of dominion that God had given us. The depravity that had totally affected 
all of our inclinations, every intention of the thoughts of our hearts, as is mentioned in Genesis 6, before the flood. And that has affected our actions, extended to the totality of the created order. That makes you and me and Adam and Eve and everyone else responsible for the effects of sin in the world. Think about it this way. If there were no humans on this earth, there would be no sin, nor consequences of sin on the rest of creation. Now, it's true that Satan rebelled first against the creator, the holy God, but it is only after humans rebelled and sinned that creation was subjected to futility and the earth was cursed because of us. When writing these verses, Paul may have had in mind Genesis 3, 17 to 19, where God says, cursed is the ground because of you. The suffering of creation is not a sign of God's failure, but is a sign of our failure, of your sin and of mine. If I were to end the message here, I would not be faithful to the text. And if Paul were to end his message here, there would be no hope. But praise God, the story does not end here. Praise God that there is hope in this wonderful truth. That though you and I might suffer pain or persecution or ridicule or loss or death or disease or even suffer in our struggle and fight against sin, all these sufferings, no matter how long, no matter how hard or weighty, are momentary as we wait the promised glory of God, which is eternal. If we suffer with Christ, we will see God's glory, and we ourselves will be glorified with him. Paul himself says this again in 2 Corinthians 4.17, this light and momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. So friends, take courage. The Spirit announces these things to us so that we may have peace. For in this world, we will have trouble, as Christ said, but take heart. He has overcome the world. Though suffering seems overwhelming, God will overwhelm suffering with an eternal weight of glory. And that weight of glory will crush suffering forever. And though we endure in this present age, this promise helps us wait patiently for what will be revealed. And this brings us to the next point, the waiting in patient expectation. So all suffering of humans and the rest of creation is a declaration of our sin and also a cry for redemption. When God made the heavens and the earth, he declared all things to be good. I like to think that creation was singing a symphony of praise to the one who conducted everything. And in many ways, creation still proclaims and sings his praises and declares his glory. Psalm 19.1 says this, the heavens declare the glory of God. Now, we all know that things now are not the way they were intended to be. 
Even creation itself here personified by Paul also knows it. Our sin affected it deeply, but not irreversibly. But it was not our sin that subjected it to futility. Verse 20, for the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. We did not submit creation to futility, nor Satan did, nor was it creation itself that did it to itself. Now, while all of us are able to do a lot of damage, none of us is able to bring about hope. That is why we must understand that it is the sovereign God himself who subjected the creation to futility because he is the only one who can do so with hope. When he cursed the ground because of us in Genesis 3, in the same proclamation he made, he also proclaimed the proto-evangelion, the good news that the offspring of the woman will bring an end to the curse. And just like the saints of old looked forward to the day the Messiah would come, so has creation itself been waiting in hope. Like an enslaved captive, shackled wrists and ankles to corruption and suffering and yearning for freedom. For the promise of the resurrection of believers comes with the promise of the revelation of the glory of God and the promise of renewal of all creation and its freedom from decay, from corruption, from death, and from suffering. If creation was subjected to futility and without hope, the whole of life would be meaningless. If there was no hope, all of our suffering would be meaningless. But it was not without hope. But if we look carefully at the promises and scriptures and prophecies, we will see distinctly that God's plan of redemption is for all creation. Isaiah 11 says, the wolf shall dwell with the lamb. What happens today if a wolf dwells with a lamb? There wouldn't be much dwelling for long. But one day the wolf will dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat and the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together, and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze, their young shall lie down together, and the lion shall eat straw like the ox. In Isaiah 65, it's a long passage, so I'll just summarize it for you. It has the promises of a new heaven and a new earth, of plentiful harvests, of peace and of prosperity and of safety. And this brings us to our mind Revelation 21 and 22, which proclaims the renewal of heaven and earth. The presence of peace and bounty, the absence of pain, suffering and death, and many more promises, as the one who was seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Everything that is groaning now will one day be made new. That is the hope that we have. The verses 19 and 22 in our passage here tell us in many ways that creation is eagerly awaiting the fulfillment of this promise of renewal. In fact, the literal translation here would be, 
in verse 19 that the eager waiting of creation is expecting the revelation of the sons of God. Such patient expectation and suspense for the promise to come is compared here in verse 22 to the patient expectation of a woman in labor. We know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. Now, many here in this congregation have given birth and several are expecting. Praise the Lord for his graces. The wait is long and at times difficult and fearful of the pain to come particularly in the final weeks. It's been a while now, but when I was still a physician back in Lebanon, I worked at the largest governmental hospital and had the privilege of delivering many babies, sometimes several in one night. None of them was named after me, unfortunately. (laughs) Now, this happened typically without epidural anesthesia because it was costly. It cost $80 to have an epidural anesthesia, and my salary was $300 a month. So imagine someone coming in without an epidural, having to pay for an epidural anesthesia. So you can imagine the pain that was part of childbirth. We also did episiotomies back then, but I'm getting into too much medical things. There was a lot of pain and a lot of screaming. I think Crystal would know, being a doula, what uh, she's experienced probably a lot of that. Now, I tell you, I do not want to experience the pains of childbirth. (laughs) But the mother always said that the joy of a new life in her arms was worth it, and that she would do it all over again. There's something glorious about the birth of a human being. Let me tell you of another experience. I'm a critical care doctor now, and in my work, we sometimes care for very sick pregnant women, many unfortunately during this pandemic. It also may not be a coincidence that I'm speaking of this today, which happens to be the Sanctity of Life Sunday, I believe, and also me being a physician committed to every human life, from conception to the moment God calls people away from this life whether that human life is born or unborn, made in the image of God who gently and beautifully knits together strands of DNA from both parents to create a unique genetic code that is at the core of every cell, of every human body, every human being that he uniquely makes and delights in giving life to. And I tell you this, death never becomes easy, even when I see it every single day. And the difficulty is compounded when I am caring for a human being within a human being. One of the worst moments is when we lose a baby. Many a time the mother holds the baby in her arms, a lifeless baby, takes photos for memory, and then makes molds of lifeless hands and feet. The joyful expectation of a promised new life suddenly 
turns into the sorrow of death, of a lost hope, and an urgency to make lasting memories of fleeting moments. Stillbirths are very painful. They are pains no one wants to experience. And such would be the pain of a creation without hope. And no other worldview besides Christianity gives hope for suffering in this life. Just as we celebrate when we can save both mother and baby, we praise our Lord that the creation's pains of childbirth come with the hope of the joyful sound of a new life where God will make all things new. Jesus said in Matthew 24 that all sufferings of this present time are but the beginnings of the pains of childbirth that will one day reveal to all his plan of renewal of heaven and of earth. Creation waits for this hope of glory to be revealed because the revelation of the glory of the children of God announces the redemption of all creation. Christ's first coming ushered the new kingdom. He has come to make his blessings flow far as the curse is found. And she, creation, is straining her eyes, looking forward as far as she can to that second coming, to the glorious moment when he will make all things new. And so we come to the promise and hope of glory. If creation is personified here as feeling an almost impatient sense of urgency for the hope to come, how much more are we to be eagerly expecting what we have been promised? Last passage that I preached on a couple, year, a couple weeks ago, verses 12 through 17, introduced the concept of our adoption by God through his spirit. In him was the inception, the beginning of our adoption through the new life birthed in us. Verse 15 says, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. That was the inception of our adoption. Verse 23 says that not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan in inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And this is the consummation of our adoption that, bring, that verse 23 brings us here to. What is, what is corruptible will be raised incorruptible, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, 42. The Christian worldview is unique in its respect for the human body. We don't, we don't see our bodies as a trap for the soul from which it is to be released. That is why traditionally, Christians, unlike pagan religions, did not burn the body. They had the highest respect for the human body because this body itself, though imperfect now, will be raised a spiritual body with glorious, perfected senses that would enjoy the eternal glory when we fellowship with the eternally glorious God. 
If we look back again at 2 Corinthians chapters 4 and 5, this body is a tent in which we groan. Just like creation longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, which is made by God. And we long with hope because the God who has prepared this very promise for us has given us the Spirit as a guarantee, a down payment, a first fruit, an antipasto, the beginning of the harvest, a foretaste of the glorious reality to come. The Spirit of life, of sanctification, of adoption that we saw in this chapter so far is the spirit of assurance, the seal of our inheritance, and the guarantor of our glorification. Paul says all the promises of God are yes, find their yes and amen in Jesus. And God has put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts as a guarantee. And we have the promise that he will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body. My mind finds it hard to grasp how we will be heirs of God himself and how our bodies will be like his glorious body. And I don't have to understand it. But it is something that is glorious and that we should look forward to with hope. So we wait eagerly. And expectantly, because there is hope. Now, let's be clear that we are saved by faith, not by hope. But we are saved in hope and for hope. This is what Paul says in verse 24. For in this hope we were saved. And we walk by faith when our sight now may only show us suffering in this present time. But one day, faith will become sight in eternity when what we hope for will become a reality. But not yet. However, even now, we have all the right reasons to rejoice. For we have been justified by faith. We have peace with God. Even now, we are children of God and co-heirs with Christ. Even now, we stand in grace and we rejoice in hope. Folks, these are all promises from the word of God. Read the word and be encouraged by it. Paul's argument in this section of Romans started all the way back in chapter 5 when he said, we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that sufferings produce endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. Why? Because God's love has been lavishly, overwhelmingly poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. The Holy Spirit who is our guarantee and the seal of our inheritance. Suffering, endurance, character, hope. And through it all, we will not be ashamed because he will not fail. Though we don't yet see eternal glory in the new heaven and earth, but the eye of faith that God has given us can see it, 
can behold it with hope and wait for it patiently. Not just patiently, eagerly, expectantly, and with anticipation. Because we have the promise, which Paul mentions a few verses later, that those whom he justified, he also glorified. It is sealed and guaranteed. This is what is called an already, but not yet. And we cannot get an, a more statement than this of an already, but not yet reality. And so we circle back to Paul's initial argument in this passage on the glory to be revealed to us and our revelation as sons of God. It might be hard to one see our current ailments or to discern future glory through the fog of present suffering. But the eyes of faith look to the spirit within us who is the guarantee of our inheritance. They look back to Christ's completed work on the cross and his work of justification in us. And they look forward with eagerness to the hope of glory that we have been promised. There are many false or unfulfilled promises in this life which may add to our suffering. Now, I wish to tell you that believing in Christ promises your best life now, but I would be a false prophet or a teacher of a false gospel. Really, no gospel at all. There's no good news in that. Brothers and sisters, this passage is a direct affront to the so-called prosperity gospel. The false narrative that if you believe in Jesus, he will fix everything right here and right now, and you will never suffer. The false narrative of Job's friends that if you have pain, you must have done something wrong. The false narratives, wolves in sheepskin, say that if you experience suffering, you do not have enough faith. Friends, there's no hope in the prosperity gospel because when suffering comes, and it will come if it has not yet already, those sands will shift under unsteady feet and people will falter. The prosperity gospel gives the false hope of what you should seek here. But Christ, our brother, did not preach such bad news. In fact, he led the way in suffering. And in our union with him, we are united with him both in present suffering and in future glory. That is why we as children of God, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, suffer with our brother in order that we may also be glorified with him. C.S. Lewis said, if tribulation is a necessary element in redemption, we must anticipate that it will never cease till God sees the world to be either redeemed or no further redeemable. The reality of our present suffering, of this tribulation we are in, is felt by people and by all of creation. But we wait patiently and we look forward to the future with hope, trusting the assurance we have that we will be redeemed and so will this world be. We do so without fear or anxiety, 
because of the radical truth that we know we deserve nothing, we have no treasure on earth, and we trust that God provides. So there's really no reason for us to be anxious or afraid. Instead, we pray and we rejoice in so far as we share Christ's sufferings that we may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Because our suffering comes with an expiration date. But eternal glory does not have an expiration date. And when believers are resurrected, when creation is renewed, we will forever enjoy and rejoice in that eternal glory. Now, rejoice does not mean feel happy. Job was not happy when his ten children died, when his possessions were destroyed, when his animals were stolen, or when his body was broken. Nor was he happy around his miserable comforters or his wife who counseled him to curse God. And though the Lord restored his fortunes and gave him another ten children, I bet he was not very happy when he was sitting on his front porch and looking over and seeing graves of ten children in the background. Sometimes we forget that, oh, God gave him everything back. But we forget the sorrow of having to sit there and know that there are ten children that he had to bury. But in the middle of his misery, in hope, he still proclaimed the famous words that we still sing in Handel's Messiah every year. I know that my Redeemer lives, and at last he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. And he said, my heart faints within me at this thought. And he said that in chapter 19 of Job, there were still many more chapters of suffering that he had to go through. Yet he still looked forward with hope, and we still sing his words today. Our Redeemer lives, and he will redeem our mortal bodies to answer C.S. Lewis's sentence. This world is redeemable. Dear friends, suffering is hard. Pain can be overwhelming. We would be odd if we do not hurt and callous if we do not hurt with others. But we live together in a community of faith. And though things are hard, they become easier in a community. So let us encourage and bear with one another. This affliction is momentary. This suffering, no matter how long, is momentary. Your marriage is momentary. Your work is momentary. Praise the Lord, my work is momentary. There's not going to be sick people in heaven anymore. Your retirement that is being threatened by inflation and all of that is momentary. But the weight of glory is eternal. So let that weight of glory fall on you. We stand in a long line of witnesses, of prophets, of priests, of saints who have shown us how to suffer, how to suffer for the kingdom in hope 
and how to encourage one another. For the time being, the indwelling spirit, John Stott says this, the indwelling spirit gives us joy and the coming glory gives us hope, but the interim suspense gives us pain. Let us take heart as we wait and press on toward the goal. For Christ is risen. Christ will come again. And we will be with him and behold his glory through all eternity. And one day we will know it will all be worth it. Let us pray. Lord, we thank you that it is in this hope that we were saved. And we do not hope for what we see because what we see is hard. And sometimes it feels overwhelming as we suffer and we see the world suffer. And we ask, how long, O Lord? But as the psalmist says, as for me, I have trusted in your steadfast love. I will trust in your mercy. I will sing to the Lord for he has been good to me. You have been good to us, O God, and you will be good to us. We thank you that... Our suffering comes with an end date. That suffering even accentuates our joy in the knowledge that in the middle of it, you stand with us, that Christ suffered on our behalf, that Christ has shown us a way, and that Christ died and Christ is risen and Christ will come again. So, God, we pray that we wouldn't be callous to the pains and hurts that our brothers and sisters feel that our hearts would continually mourn because of sin and its effects in this world, that our hearts would mourn because of our own sin. But as we said earlier today, our sins, though they are many, have been forgiven in Christ. And so we look forward with hope. We thank you for the blood that was spelled for us, the body that was broken for us, that reminds us every time we gather together that we can look forward with anticipation to the day that we will be feasting together at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And that is the hope that I pray, O oh God, would endure in our lives every single day, even in our darkest moments. Because you have overcome the world, and you have condemned sin, and you have put an end to death, and you have made a spectacle of our enemy. So we trust in you, we glorify your name, and we praise you, O oh God because you are worthy to be praised and to receive glory and honor and adoration now and forever. Amen.